as we did before, with your eyes open or closed, take a moment to access and register to whatever extent it was legitimately true, feeling heard by the other person, feeling received, feeling known, or at least you were with someone who was trying to, including feeling that your efforts to empathize were recognized and received. So just being quiet here for a moment of letting it land inside what it's like to feel in some ways understood, seen, recognized, especially uh, your goodness recognized. Okay, come on back and let's talk about this a bit. All right? So, thank your partner, of course. Uh, Come on back. So, we're going to do a microphone. Where's our aerobic microphone runner? Woohoo! All right. Any comments or questions about that practice or anything related to it? All right, I'll prime, I'll prime the pump with one sort of observation. It has struck me that in you know, certain Buddhist circles, if you will, that even though there's a recognition of what's called dependent origination, that everything arises dependently and passes away dependently, certainly in terms of our experience, the idea of acknowledging our dependence upon other people, uh, that's a kind of weird anathema. Isn't that a very strange exception? And, um, you know, human infants are utterly dependent upon their caregivers, including for many, many years. Uh, in, certainly in the conditions in which we evolved, uh, a mother who wished to care for her child is dependent upon uh, the band, you know, the larger village it takes to raise a child. And as adults, we have significant dependencies upon other people. And... You know, I wrote a practice, actually, a Just One Thing practice called Accept Dependence, in part because, for me personally, facing my dependence upon others, you know, took me a while to come to. Uh, I remember one of my best friends long ago when he was complaining about a situation with his partner, and I said, well, maybe you could just kind of surrender to the way she is, you know? She's this way, right? He said, I don't do surrender, you know? (laughs) Then we got drunk and he threw up on my shoe. But anyway, (laughs) that was back in the day. Anyway, so long story short, it takes, so what does it take to accept dependence? It takes a great deal of inner fullness. Isn't that interesting? So there's this kind of really interesting cycle which we can work if we know where we are in the circle, whereby we accept our dependence, we internalize healthy, beneficial, positive resource experiences from other people, like feeling understood or connected with or allied with or befriended, what have you, or even loved, we um, internalize those and then we become less and less dependent 
upon their external provision, which actually helps us become more and more accessible to intimacy with other people and more and more comfortable with opening out into a kind of profound peacefulness with utter dependency upon everything for our moment-to-moment existence. Kind of a nice circle, huh? Okay. Questions or comments? Great. Oh, I saw a hand somewhere, did I? Oh, good. All set. Thank you. This is probably a simple question. In, in the con- Don't you know that's like a tease, right? Yeah, it is. I, <laughs> yeah. Rick, in what is con- reality anyway? Yeah, right. In the, in, the, in the context of doing an exercise like this one, yeah. this is pretty easy. Because we've set aside time, there are no interruptions, no, dinner isn't cooking, none of that stuff is happening. Yeah. How do we take this kind of practice, the five minutes of listening and just listening and, and feeding back, and feed that, into our, feed that into our lives? It's so real. Um, you know, I had a friend who um, for a long time worked with kids in schools, and he had a, a line that, you know, many exceptions to it, okay. But he was speaking of a, a lot of parents he knew, and he was working with their teenagers. And he said, you know, it's interesting. A lot of parents, not all, a lot of parents will give their kids everything except their time. And when he said that, you know, I had to wince inside looking at you know, the times where I was busy or I was doing this or I was tired or whatever. And, you know, I just didn't make myself emotionally available for my children or for somebody else in my life. And I can actually feel right now, as I said, what I spoke of earlier is the wince of healthy remorse. I'm okay with that wince of healthy remorse. So it's so interesting, isn't it, how, how rarely we feel that another person just gives us their full attention for more than 60 seconds straight. You know, without, you can just watch their eyes start to move, you know, they start to look around for this or that, or it's just like, how long do we actually feel received? And yet when we do feel received, what a beautiful gift that is. So I think the first step is to value this and ask yourself, you know, what's pardon me, what's really true in the degree to which you feel you're getting that kind of depth of listening that you can ask for. And then they'll do what they do and you negotiate from there and I'm going to get to that real soon. Flip the other way, to what extent do we give our, give our attention over to the other? Do we give them the gift of really feeling like they've actually landed in us? And so the first step for me is to value this and to second assess what's actually the case, especially in important relationships. And then third, I find it's actually really practical and helpful to realize that a few minutes here and there can make a ton of difference. I'm not arguing against a longer, really in-depth conversation, but you know, I'm often struck by how five, ten minutes, roughly, of real listening, sometimes fewer than that, really can make a big difference. So it helps to go in to know that, you know, a little bit can often go a long way. And also know for yourself 
fences create good neighbors, uh, that you can draw a boundary. If you feel like this is someone who's, you know, a little bit of an emotional vampire, if I dare say that kind of phrase, or you know what I'm talking about, or maybe there's some real neediness there, or it's just hard for that person to open out their slots in the motherboard to register feeling felt, like you've been feeling them, and it's just hard for them to access that experience for whatever reason, okay? It's helpful to know that you can set boundaries if you need to. Like, I've got 10 minutes for this, but I'm going to give you a full 600 seconds of full presence here. And, you know, and then that's your boundary. So the boundary, knowing that you can step back and out, especially if you need to, um, you know, can help you listen more deeply. So I'd say that. Um, there's a lot more about that. I mean, again, this whole topic, just relationships. Yeah, let's do love in six hours. No worries. When it's hot. Yeah, that's easy. So it's more than that. Maybe I'll just say one last little thing that for me is really practical about this. Um, what does it take inside to let yourself receive that other person and be moved by them? You know, And I think that often we can explore that, wow, I'm, I'm afraid to be moved. Because I'm afraid that if I'm moved by this person, that means giving up my own rights, waving my, you know, giving them a pass on how they've wronged me, or that I'll be flooded. And it can really helps to it can help to establish, hey, I can be really moved by them. You know, visualize kelp waving in a stormy sea, or that tree that's got the wind whistling through, or uh, the very centered, you know. A jiu-jitsu person who can just receive the other person and realize, I can really receive you and it's okay. I'm actually not blown away. Tuning into the body really helps. Breathing is ongoing. This heart is still beating. Hearness is intact and stable even as your intensity really comes my way. And then the last thing I'll just say on that, and I'll get to it a little later, I think, is it in my view, sometimes it really helps to essentially create this kind of structure, explicitly or implicitly, where you basically say to somebody, I want to give you what you want from me. Let's say, I want to give you deep listening. And whatever you do, I'm going to try to do that. That'll, that goes to a topic I'm moving quickly toward called unilateral virtue. I'm going to try to do that even if you're a real schmo about it, because that's my code, that's my practice, that's my aspiration, okay? I'm going to try to do that, and, not but, and it would help me to give you what you want from me if you gave me this, if you gave me not yelling at me, if you gave me sorting out what you're blaming me for from everything else, if you slowed down, if you gave me a chance to say back to you what I'm hearing from time to time, whatever that might be, if you didn't get so in my face, if you respected it when I said, wait a second here, I have to kind of pause to absorb, if you give me those sorts of things, then I'm a lot more set up to give you what you want from me. See that structure? When I realized for myself that one of the best ways to take care of myself was to give other people what they wanted, that was like a complete breakthrough, a completely reframed independence and 
healthy selfishness in a sense. And then when I also realized that for me to be able to sustain giving them what they want, which is also good for me besides benevolent, I needed often to receive certain things from them and I could ask for those things in the service of my giving to them. That created a whole different frame. And then being able to talk about it in that way, I just think that for me was, has been a very useful set of skills to develop. Kind of sense? Okay. okay, good. Maybe another couple people and then we'll move into loving kindness. All right, all the way in the back, where's our magic, our magic wand coming your way? Thank you. I noticed a couple of times today, um, it happened in, with one of the questions this morning, um, where we were supposed to feel good about some aspect of ourselves and uh, one of the questioners mentioned that when she started to do that, uh, the negative things yeah. came in. And in the, uh, in the this is a similar kind of thing can happen. Um, it, it's one thing for, it's one thing to truly experience what the other person is experiencing because I feel the same thing. Yeah. And it's a different thing to experience it because they're experiencing it. If, if we've got a need in ourselves that's so overpowering, yeah. then it seems to me that when, as soon the, the mirror neurons and all that stuff, as soon as we see that in the other person, we start to feel it inside ourselves so powerfully yeah. that we lose the ability to really I- experience it in them because yeah. it's, we're experiencing it in ourselves. Yeah. I, I wish I knew a solution to that. Well, thank you. And you said, I think, very eloquently and in a felt way, kind of what I was trying to talk about, about how when we get flooded by the feelings of others, right, uh, it's hard to actually stay present with them over there because we get kind of flooded over here. And so how to do that. Um, If it's of interest to you, I, and again, you could just, flip to the pages here without getting the book, but in Buddha's brain, in the chapter on empathy, I have about a page and a half of sort of neurologically informed ways to um, stay stably present here to really sustain intimacy with over there, including when the person over there is getting intense or to really raise the bar here when they're intensely angry with us or finding fault with us over here. And a Several ways to do that are to tune into your own body, to really tune into the body. That strengthens the sense of being here independent of what's happening over there. Because immediately it's palpable, I'm in this body. (laughs) No, I'm not in your body. If I think I'm in your body, I'm either enlightened or psychotic. (laughs) Usually the latter, because rarely the former. So, you know, I'm over here. Or psychedelicized, you know, but anyway... Um, so that's one you know and a second honestly goes to the Buddhist teachings on equanimity where we recognize within increasingly felt it may start intellectually but it gets increasingly felt because that's really what we want to do you know as Samuel Bonder puts it we want to not just wake up we want to wake down we want to come down into the body you know I could say in passing that 
my own journey through a lot of intellectual fireworks that are quite fascinating about the brain and evolution and whatnot has really brought me home into an intimacy with this body, you know, this body here and now. So um, through recognizing in a felt way that what that person's experiencing, they're upset, etc. First, it's made up of many, many parts. Thoughts, sensations, emotions, perceptions, it's compounded. It's like a mosaic or like a tapestry with many threads. And you can kind of disentangle it. You can see the many compounded elements of it. And second, those compounded parts arise dependently. They occur due to causes, thousands of causes upstream of this moment of now. In the life of that person and in you know, nature and reality altogether, most of which have nothing to do with us. And when we kind of rest in that recognition of all those causes, most of which have nothing to do with us, most of which we can do nothing about, you know, streaming through, um, that can help us stay more centered over here. You know, it's this sweet intersection or balance of compassion for what that other person feels while also remaining in our core, at least, undisturbed by it. You know, to finish up, um, you know, the Buddha had this phrase he used that I've been reflecting on more and more. He described his own journey toward awakening and in kind of the run-up to his own enlightenment. And he's describing sort of mature stages of his own practice. He says, basically, various things arose in my mind, pains and pleasures, but they did not invade the mind and remain. Isn't that key? Stuff comes up, but does it invade the mind and remain? You know, we may feel that other person, but do we feel like, do we feel invaded in our core, and do we feel stuck, unfree, right? Chained in some way to their, what's going through them right now, what's going through their mind stream. And so for me, that's the art. The art is to have that kind of open-heartedness and benevolence for others, which involves benevolence for oneself, to have that, while at the same time having that kind of internal freedom, you know, uh, in which it doesn't, we're not captured by or caught by their reactions or our reactions to their reactions. And on the road to that, practice helps, doesn't it? Okay. All right. Let's go into loving kindness. Maybe one more person. I see a hand all the way in the back. Great. And then we'll move on. Um, Actually, may I just say this? And so you can ask yourself, what's your strength? What's your strong suit? Like for me, especially growing up, my strong suit was rugged independence. I don't do surrender, you know? Like I didn't have to work on that one. I had that one pretty down for a lot of reasons, including resisting my parents, you know? I had a lot of practice. Um, but to open the heart, that's really been a lot in my own practice. So you could ask yourself, compassion, equanimity, you know, uh, heart, strength, intimacy, autonomy, whatever words we want to use, what's your strong suit? Or, or these days, what might be a particularly good element to work on? On the other hand, I think there are a lot of people, maybe the gentleman or, you know, brought up the, the man who brought up the point, um, we have a lot of heart for other people. Wow, are we affected by other people. And what helps us to do is to kind of 
center and shore up our own equanimity, our own autonomy, our own strength over here. So just kind of see what might be true for you. Okay, please. Thanks. So my question is, um, I feel like I have trouble really recognizing when, like you said before, whether someone's needing you to just listen or needing you to maybe offer a little bit more. And these skills are really useful to try and tune into that. But I feel like unless someone explicitly says I need some advice about this or um, they just want to be able to talk about uh, suffering in their life, I don't really know if I'm being useful. I feel like I lean toward the trying to fix it and trying to help them solve a problem or offering maybe unsolicited advice. But I want to be able to be more mindful and just be a better listener. And I think part of it comes from my upbringing where I kind of witnessed how my mother um, expressed empathy and it was this kind of over kind of pouring of, of sympathy seeming, not really empathy, and not really solution-oriented, very kind of falling apart and, you know, just kind of mm. not really being useful. And so I want to be useful in this, and I'm not really knowing where the best place is to be. Yeah, well, it's, it's probably you and everybody in the room knows there's, there's not a right answer. It's more like some call-outs. Uh, I find that, you know, there's like noble silence. Like there's just a place for pausing. Tara Brock talks about the sacred pause where we just receive and explore, we investigate what's there before jumping in, right? You may be aware of, um, in Buddhism, the seven factors of awakening, you know, uh, mindfulness, investigation, energy or effort, uh, you know, bliss, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Concentration being, you know, deep absorption states. You know, different factors. It's sometimes said that of the seven, the one that's most important is investigation. Isn't that interesting? You know, I think about Joseph Goldstein asked, you know, who's a major American Buddhist teacher, highly respected by many people, including me, you know, what really has served you in your practice, Joseph, over the years? He said, curiosity. Again, isn't that interesting that he would pick that word, curiosity? So can we have, you know, I think right there, I take refuge. That's another idea. I take refuge sometimes in my own listening, my own quiet, my own receptivity. I've made most of my mistakes in life have been based on sticking, you know, opening my mouth. I rarely make mistakes when I shut it. <laughs> Occasionally I shut it too long, but, you know, usually the other way. So, like right there, can you give yourself the refuge of you don't need to necessarily respond other than listening and presence and attention and attunement. Right there. How's that going? Second, what is it that comes up around the need to help? Often, you know, we have good motives. We we feel they're suffering. We want to solve it. Sometimes, as others have said, we're just disturbed by their pain. So we want to solve the problem over here of my disturbance with your pain by getting you to not feel any pain anymore, right? Including because I'm getting you to suppress it somehow. Um, that's, that's not cool, right? So, that would, like, what's my motive over here? What's really my motive? Am I getting agitated over here? Like, that to me is a big flag. Um, and I'd say the last thing is, and I'm going to let myself say something really problematic, but okay, now I got your full attention, right? Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Um, 
I find that particularly for me again, some you know sometimes we're in situations where it's not appropriate to do a pathic attunement. You know, we need to solve a problem quickly. There's an emergency. Get out of the building now. It's burning. You know, I don't care. You know how you feel. Out, right? Whatever. Uh, it's not about me sharing your pain. Out, right? Okay. But very often, I think it's just great to start with joining. You know, and it, I kind of got interested in it because it was my weak suit. It was my weak muscle, so I was especially interested in growing it. You know, the capacity to join and tune in. Um, and then on the basis of that, so now I'm going to say this thing with my wife. You know, heterosexual relationships. So take all that into account. You know, we'll just be talking for a while, very, very much often, a kind of just kind of tuning into each other, whatever. And then I might say to her, you know, do you want the guy take? Okay, I'm sorry, I use that phrase. Do you want the guy take? And obviously, man, don't have a monopoly on the guy take. I'm just using it to say something. <laughs> I'll probably get an email about this. It's okay. It's tricky business talking about anything related to gender, as you probably have noticed. Um, and, you know, sometimes my wife will say, no. <laughs> you know, great. <laughs> Off the hook, right? Other times, be like, yeah, it's like we're in that moment. Or we'll flip it around, you know. I'll say, like, she'll be, like, doing empathic listening. I'll be like, forget it. Tell me what I had to do, you know. There's a, but it, we're asking permission. I guess that's my point about all that. Okay? Okay, great. For what that's worth. Um, all right, let's move on to loving kindness, then we'll take a break, okay? So, uh, I think I'll do it like this. So, it's interesting that, of course, as Einstein put it, we're connected to everything else, right? And in the interest of time, I think I'll just read the very final paragraph of this. He says, Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison of our own isolation by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Right? Wow. So, as an image of that, we have two modern exemplars, really, of compassion and kindness. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, South Africa, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You can imagine other people in, in different settings, including people who are not you know, so well-known. And you can see in your heart that feeling uh, of compassion and kindness um, that these two people have really cultivated inside themselves. You may know as well uh, a teaching from the Buddha called the Loving Kindness uh, Sutra or Sutta uh, teaching, which I'll read to you here. And as I do this, just to suggest a practice that a teacher gave to me one time, see if there's a word or phrase in this sutta that really speaks to you, and then we'll segue into a a meditative practice here. So as the Buddha teaches, wishing, which goes, by the way, to the place for wholesome wishes, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Omitting none, whether they are weak or strong, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, 
her only child. So, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Freed. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So there's some key words or phrases in here. Uh, For a friend of mine, the key word or phrase, and again, see for yourself, what's a key takeaway for you? You know, if there was one thing to take home with you from this teaching here, what's your one thing? For my friend, and I think I might have heard someone else say it, it's omitting none, including those we disapprove of or dislike or who've done us wrong. Truly, they've done us wrong. Omitting none. For another person, perhaps a key word or phrase is this one, which really popped out for me today, and I've read this passage dozens, dozens, many dozens of times, if not hundreds, freed. That theme again in here of liberation, or inner freedom, freed from the bonds of hatred or ill will. Or another key theme or phrase that might pop up for you, popped up for me today, is this recollection. The root of the word for mindfulness in the ancient language of early Buddhism is a memory. It's recollectedness. It's a sustained present moment awareness of this warm-heartedness toward others. By the way, this all can seem quite lofty and it's aspirational, but the root of the word for loving-kindness, again in the language of early Buddhism, is friendliness. Loving-kindness, that's like, okay, the Dalai Lama, he can do that. Mother Teresa, when she was around, okay. You know, Aung San Suu Kyi, that's pretty up there. Friendliness, though. I can handle friendliness. Including, to quote the Dalai Lama, as he puts it, referring to the Chinese government, he says, my friends, the enemy Chinese. You know, that combination. I can resist, I can be strong, I can be a serious thorn in the side of, you know, the occupation of my homeland. And I can see our own shared commonality. And I can have loving kindness. To tell a little story there, and then we'll we'll move into a practice. Um, A true story, a a monk, speaking of the Tibetans and the Chinese government, um, you know, a monk was held in a prison in Tibet for a long time, tortured routinely, terrible things happened to him, which happened sadly to many, both there and elsewhere in the world, including, honestly, here in the United States, in different kinds of ways. Anyway, uh, finally the the monk was released and he made his way to northern India where the Dalai Lama lives and he had a chance to have a conversation with him. So the monk was telling about just some of what happened to him. And the Dalai Lama at one point burst out and said, didn't you fear for your life at some point? The monk's reply was, well, only when I began to fear that I was losing my loving kindness for my jailers. That's how the monk defined his own true life. 
I felt like I was losing my loving kindness for my jailers. So I think to myself when I heard that story, dude, talking to myself, if if that monk could do that with that, like, what am I doing getting my knickers in a twist when my teenage kids give me that look? You know the look? (laughs) Or I'm stuck in traffic, or someone whose politics I don't like is suddenly on Fox News, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, come on. Okay. All right? So you want to try a practice of this? So here we go. Let's get real about it. So I'm going to give you a little structure that's common. Um, You may be familiar with it. You can depart from this structure if you like. It's to think, first of all, of this quality of friendliness or good wishes, wishing well, which again is to be distinguished from forgiveness or approval, disapproval, or beliefs about justice, injustice. There's a kind of wishing well that's independent of that, free of that. Traditionally, there are five categories. Uh, benefactors, those who have really served us, toward whom it's quite easy to generate uh, you know, warm-hearted feelings. Uh, 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 friends, people that may not have given us so much, but we have a sense of camaraderie with, neutral beings, difficult beings, sometimes called the enemy, call it difficult, or ourselves. Uh, Sometimes people start with self when they move through the list. Uh, For many people, self is actually kind of difficult, so warming it up by focusing on others can often help. So these are the five traditional categories. Feel free to adapt them. Also, there are four traditional wishes. Wishes for safety, health, happiness, and ease. Okay? Technically, kindness, uh, as I said earlier, has to do with wishes around happiness, kind of above the waterline. It doesn't presuppose suffering, although it could. Compassion is more directed at states kind of below the waterline, you know, kind of zero to minus ten in that range. Okay? So... Uh, And you can adapt, by the way, these different kinds of wishes to your own situation. So I'll give you some suggestions as we move this through this practice for about 10 minutes, and then we'll just segue from it into a break. Okay? How many of you have done a kind of formal loving-kindness practice before? About a third of the room. Great. So for some, it'll be familiar. For others, it might be new. And the trick is to... It's kind of like an opening to or an encouraging of an authentic feeling. So you're not trying to force anything or to fake it till you make it. You're trying to find something authentically real. All right? And as a lot of research on this territory has shown, through repeated practice of warm-heartedness, compassion, loving-kindness, we actually strengthen the neural substrates that support uh, those states so that we have readier access to them uh, when things are difficult and the oatmeal starts to fly. Want to try it? Here we go. So um, I think the order in which I'll do this will be benefactor, friend, neutral person, self, and difficult person. And we'll go through each one of the four wishes and feel very free to uh, not... Uh, use language in your mind because that might be distracting and just kind of rest in a warm lovingness. Okay? So here we go. If you could bring to mind someone who is, for you, a benefactor, someone who's helped you along the way, could be a parent or a teacher, 
could be a friend. You might think of a pet or a child even as a benefactor. Or maybe, um, you know, people who uh, you don't know but have really helped you in some ways. Maybe the people who, you know, develop some medical procedure that really has served you well. Whatever it might be, bringing to mind one or more beings that are for you a benefactor and finding the sincere wish inside yourself that this benefactor be safe. If it helps, you could have soft thoughts in the back of the mind like, may you be safe. Or something more specific like, may you be sheltered. May you be protected from inner or outer harm. Or you might find it works best for you to kind of move away from language because maybe language is getting in the way of a warm-heartedness for you. So as we go through this, to keep language to a minimum, I'll just offer a word as a bit of a prompt, and you can do what you like with it. So safe for a benefactor. Healthy, exploring wishes for the health, broadly defined, of your benefactor. Happiness. Ease, which is often taken to mean kind of material well-being, having health insurance, enough food to eat, running water. May you live with ease, comfort. And then we'll move on to a friend. And as always, feel very free to go at your own pace here, even as I move through the prompts. So a friend, safety.
health. Happiness. Ease. And as you do this, from time to time, you can get a sense of your own loving kindness sinking into you and spreading inside you, registering it as a state of mind that can be increasingly encoded in your own brain. And then on to a neutral person, perhaps someone that you see at work but don't know well or Perhaps somebody else in this room near you that you don't know. Wishing that this neutral person would be safe. Be healthy. Be happy. It's quite powerful to wish that someone you don't know at all is a complete stranger to you, to wish that they be truly, really happy.
and to wish that this neutral person live with ease. And then yourself. You can play around with different ways of doing this. Even, if you like, imagining younger layers of yourself, younger parts of yourself, or even just parts of yourself, period, such as parts that are maybe angry or prickly. You know, it's an interesting way to play around with this. Do what you like. So with regard to yourself, wishes that you be safe and free from both inner and outer harm. that you be healthy. Or that at least there is some space or foundation of well-being or health that can contain illness or pain or disability, or limitation. Wishing that you be happy. If you like, you could explore mobilizing a kind of fierce intention that you be truly happy and that the causes and conditions of your true happiness be really nourished and advocated for in your own life. 
not out of chasing or clinging, but out of nurturance, the same nurturance and advocacy and being an ally to yourself that you would bring to bear if you were really determined for and intentional about the true happiness of someone you loved. separating and freeing the wish that you be happy from the ways in which you're not happy. It's okay for them both to be present. Establishing yourself in and taking refuge in the healthy longing to be truly happy, truly at peace. And then last, the wish that you live with ease. And then the difficult person. It could often help to work with someone who's mildly difficult, like a friend who's kind of exasperating, uh, gets on your nerves but you love them, or someone moderately difficult. If you want, you can take on a more challenging person. Just take good care of yourself. And you can do this with more than one difficult person because as you've probably noticed there are more than one difficult person you know on the planet so to begin with can you wish that this difficult person live with safety A little variation on this wishing is to be glad for them that they have the causes and conditions of safety in their life. 
and see if you can find a kind of inner freedom in which wishing them well disentangles you from them and helps you find a place where they cause you less suffering. Next, can you wish that they be healthy? Physically healthy and psychologically healthy. Can you wish that they be happy? Only doing what's authentic to you, but can you find some authentic wishes that this difficult person be truly happy, including finding and exploring your own freedom in wishing them well? Can you wish that they live with ease? For example, can you find the freedom and peace inside yourself from wishing that they have all the success that you lack? or all the love that you don't, can you find the freedom there? And then as we finish up here, with regard to the difficult person or any other way it would help you to practice right now, can you locate that place of freedom 
and peace and lovingness in yourself that is stabilized in part by wishing others well who are challenging for you. They're going to do whatever they do over there. But over here, you can really rest in and be nourished by your own goodness and lovingness and peace and strength over here. You know, the Buddha used um, uh, a phrase to kind of summarize it. Take, uh, find gladness in your goodness, you know, which motivates us to, to be good and is worth doing in its own right. There's a justice there. So one nice thing to do, if it's real for you, is to kind of register without vanity or arrogance or specialness, a kind of wholesome sense of gladness in the recognition of your own goodness, including the goodness that's so palpably present, isn't it, in doing this kind of loving-kindness practice. Okay, let's take a 20-minute break and come back at 3.35. Okay, I'll start on time, 3.35. And then we're going to get very practical and nitty-gritty with other people. See you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.